0: Hello and welcome to the Urbanist Monocle's program all about the built environment. I'm your host, Carlotta Babello. Coming up...
1: The solutions for density will be different in one place to another, but it's clear that there's an increase. So it's very easy to forecast that the management of density and of buildings is going to be more and more relevant.
0: The way cities house people, both in residences and offices, has experienced a paradigm shift in the past few years. But the need for dense, livable environments has never ceased. So, how do we design human-centric density, battle sprawl and rethink building use in our city core? On the show today, we report from a conference exploring the human impact of dense urban centres to see how best to deal with increasing numbers of city dwellers in the decades to come. And we discuss a fore-thinking text from 1926 that has plenty of lessons for the modern day on why density is what makes urban environments thrive. That's ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Carlotta Ribello. The Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat held their annual conference in Singapore this year with a the theme of humanising high density. The issue of densification is one that will grow in importance over the coming decades as urban populations continue to rise along with living costs. But how do we humanise the concrete and steel forest? How do we encourage cities to build up rather than out? And how do we deal with tall buildings when their tenants move out? To find out the answers to these questions and more, Jessica Bridger went along to this year's conference and she sent us this report. Density is a hot topic in
2: urbanism. The UN projects that by 2050, 70% of people will be living in cities. That's a lot of city. Here's a couple more statistics. 80% of what we have built already will still be here in 2050. Okay, fine. But we do need to build 60% more city by 2050, which is actually astounding. As the world urbanizes, the question of where to go is often answered with a simple up. Building vertically increases urban density and, in theory at least, reduces sprawl. You would be forgiven for thinking this is reductive and simple, but it is a solution. However, tall buildings all too often create inhuman urban areas unpleasant, anonymous-feeling bits of megacity. It is this exact problem that the Council for Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, known as CTBUH, addressed at its October 2023 conference in Singapore, titled Humanizing High Density. Founded in 1969, the CTBUH is the leading institution for cutting-edge engineering, architecture, vertical transport and planning for tall buildings. This year's conference marks a growing concern for how we can do density right, one story at a time. First, we need to understand what's below the skyline. With the help of Alex Lawler, a principal at Sydney-based architectus, creators of some truly tall, truly great tall buildings, she was one of the panellists.
3: When we experience cities, we experience them both as skyline you know, what we see in the postcard, the pretty kind of sunset. And then as we walk through cities, we're experiencing them as the ground line. And what we're talking about is that as designers, we actually need to be very conscious of both how a building sits with its neighbours and sits within the context of the city, as well as how we work not only architecturally in the ground plane, but also in that community shaping element. But where does density fit in exactly? In
2: 2022, CTBUH appointed a new CEO, the architect Javier Quintana de Unia. He was eager to explain.
1: Density doesn't come always in tower shape. More and more, cities are evolving from a lower density to a mid density or even higher density, like is the case mostly in the Asian realm. Vertical urbanism refers to all those practices, strategies to manage the city, to think about the city with different numbers than the traditional ones.
2: Vertical urbanism, the urban qualities of tall buildings, maybe even the urban culture of tall buildings, is the concern of the CTBUH.
1: Traditionally, tall buildings have been icons. They've been a space for innovation. They've been... Objects of representation. So, in itself, they're culture, and that gives them a sense of importance and meaning, etc.
2: Yes, tall buildings are tall and very impressive, especially the best of the best, as seen at CTBUH events and especially at the CTBUH awards, considered the Oscars of tall buildings.
1: They are like the magnet of innovation. I like to compare CTBUH with Formula One. It's a bit like a club of people where the best teams, with the best engineers, with the best designers, the most ambitious developers, they come up with ideas. that, for many years, they've been about getting higher or taller and taller.
2: But slowly, things are shifting a bit. The usual metrics are perhaps not enough in an era where we need to build up, a lot of up, but do well at unprecedented quantities.
1: The idea behind a tall building is being tall, no? for obvious reasons. Height is the way to measure if you're tall or not, or if you belong to this club or not. no. But things are changing. And I think we can say that we're in a moment of shifting values from the more mathematical, quantitative ones, how tall you are, to how sustainable you are. Or how much density, how much people can you put there to how many people should we put there so their experience is positive. So there's this from quantitative to qualitative that the industry is responding no? at this point. And it's a slow process, but also non-stop. And our topics need to evolve with that. And the human component of density that is intrinsic to the whole definition of density and tall buildings had not been protagonists in this way. So that's why we thought that people should be the center of this conference here in Singapore and then in Kuala Lumpur.
2: Density is increasing and we need expert bodies, associations, working groups to do it properly, to build better the first time around.
1: We're becoming more and more relevant because cities are getting denser and denser. The future is dense. I don't know how dense, or depending where we are, it will be more or less. And the shapes of densities or the solutions for density will be different in one place to another, but it's clear that there's an increase. So it's very easy to forecast that the management of density and tall buildings is going to be more and more relevant.
2: The conference this year is only one step, and in the coming years, CTBUH will surely make more.
1: I see tall buildings becoming more, not the Formula One, but more mainstream. And if you ask me how do I see the organization moving forward, Is to coming out of that club, asking other professionals to be part of this conversation, inviting them not only to our conferences, but to help us to resolve the problem that is coming. We are moving from a more professional environment to a more people's environment. And of course, we want to become more relevant. We want to interact with higher agencies, the people that are behind policy, because at the end, We are experts in density and density is one of the components, if not the most relevant in urban space and the conceptions of cities in the next decades.
2: But how do we actually design better high density? Andrea Teixeira, a principal at Shop Architects, has worked on some of the biggest and best large urban projects, tall ones, of the past decade. She took some time to explain just before taking home the coveted CTBUH award for future project for her
4: Outlassian
2: Tower in Sydney.
4: I really believe that uh, if I could put it in a simple terms, when we think about high density, we think about very tall buildings. And the way that they touch the ground or what they do in those 40 feet, two stories, it's what matters for a human scale. You're essentially leaving two different scales in that building the scale of the ground floor, the street level, which should be designed for people and very well connected. And then you can leave the scale of the building that floats above. I like to think that a great building, a great high rise, that building object should be the signpost of a very well activated 24 seven life at the ground. Life on the ground, the ground line, the urban
2: experience we can all understand, the backbone of the European city that we all love. But we do not all love the tall tower downtown.
4: I would say that it really depends on the precedent that we are speaking of. But traditionally, if you think about the downtowns of every high-dense city, large city, you're thinking of high-rises just next to each other, And that has sometimes certain impacts in the city. So you create more shade with less sun crossing all of your streetscapes. And in some cases, like the ground floors, like where the podiums, where those buildings touch the ground, are not really open. So you're basically living in almost a labyrinth, right, of like small streets which are not very well connected. Now, if you think about a city that has great retail on the ground, still has these towers floating above, but does offer a really great connectivity, lanes, parks, landscape, and brings the nature to those podium levels, that's maybe something that you offer a better quality of space, even though you do have a high density and towers around that precinct or CBD or downtown area. One of the
2: most impressive presentations at the conference was by Eric Perry, architect of some of the world's most beautiful and thoughtfully conceived tall buildings. The London-based architect is active globally, and his one undershaft will rival the shard for height in London when it is completed in 2029. Getting the human into challenging tall tower, high development cost projects is a feat.
5: For the one project that has the roof garden at 120 Fenchurch Street, it's where, as a designer, you need also to be a kind of uh, a mediator between the corporate client who has the bottom line and the opportunity and then the planning regime, because I was able to push the idea of the public garden, which meant another core that had to penetrate through the commercial space, I was able to push that because I essentially got the developer three more floors.
2: London, like the best development-minded cities, is notable for having a method to increase urban quality by offering incentives to developers, opening the route for trade-offs. You give us public space, we give you more height. You need a clever, civic-minded architect as well.
5: After that, it is realizing that whilst one doesn't have the generosity of large public spaces at ground... It's been possible to create spaces at an upper level, not out of reach upper, not windy upper, but what we call the fifth elevation, the roof of the lower buildings, because the higher buildings look down on those roofs, and to create gardens and places that are publicly accessible, free, where anyone can go and have their sandwich at at a break point or can just go to wander, to walk, to meet. That has been radical and very interesting. And as I say, one of the things that is very evident is the beautiful peace and tranquility you get on a garden that's placed somewhere between the 10th and 15th floor. It's amazing.
2: Finally, Alex Lawler joins us again. To bring the heritage to bear on how we understand our cities and our buildings as human-scaled places, as places where there are many tall towers, starting with globally notable Singapore.
3: Well, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the ground plane and the ground to level five, which is kind of a well-understood metric. We're here in Singapore, and you just have to look out over the rooftops and you see the terracotta roofs. It's almost established like a datum, and the newer modern buildings and the redevelopments and towers around the heritage parts of the city are almost taking that like a datum. And you can see that ground to podium level really starting to be inhabited and greened and, and really taking off. And I think that that's from you know the external part of the city perception, but then there's also that internal part. So you know a lot of the buildings that both architectus is designing as well as other practices think about those tall buildings as a series of neighbourhoods, and so thinking about what does a neighbourhood need every four or five levels, and then using that as a schema that is applied through a very tall building. So, city lovers, urbanists,
2: even those of you who are wary of the skyscraper, perhaps the key is to think about density in a new way. Perhaps we must begin with the small scale, the human scale, and see how that fits into the tall building, the large scale. We must think, as Alex Lawler rightly pointed out, about density in neighborhoods, not in stories. The most telling part of the conference's quest to humanize high density was at the CTBUH Awards, where Sydney's Key Quarter project took home a record nine awards. Developer Dexis, teamed with landscape architect urban designer Aspect Studios, integrated existing buildings and a new tower by 3XN into a holistic urban landscape. From top to bottom, the collection of structures is an extremely human take on a very dense project in the center of Sydney. This is promising. The ideas of organizations like CTBUH and the projects it champions must trickle down to the less ambitious, more everyday projects that increase urban density. Most urban projects are not 250-meter tall, Grade A office towers are luxury residential, or a mixed-use blend of those, plus really good retail. But, as I saw at the conference, we have a lot to learn from just those buildings, and the people who build them. The push to build a better city comes from the regular projects, the everyday towers of everyday people. If we are to build 60% of the future city by 2050, and reconfigure parts of the city that we have, we need to look at these ideas of how to build up in a new kind of vertical urbanism, the city between the skyline and the ground line, the city for all. Figuring out how to increase urban density while ensuring livability and urban character is essential and perhaps even urgent. The question is not if we build tall towers. It is how we do it well. For Monocle and Singapore, I'm Jessica Bridger.
0: Now published in 1926, The Freedom of the City was a Literary Defense of Density and City Life, penned by the American landscape architect Charles Downing Lay. The book had a muted reception upon release, but more recently, the professor of city and regional planning, Thomas Campanella, has decided to bring this text to a new generation of urbanists, along with added notes, imagery and writings. This show's regular host, Andrew Tuck, caught up with Thomas and he started by asking why the freedom of the city isn't as well known as perhaps it should be.
6: For reasons that aren't entirely clear, the book kind of fizzled. I came across this book because I was interested in the author, Charles Lay, a prominent landscape architect in the early years, I would say the first half of the 20th century in New York City. He worked with the city for a while, was the city's landscape architect. This is before the consolidation of the Parks Department into one unit representing all five boroughs so he was the uh, landscape architect effectively of manhattan and the bronx at the time but still a, a very important position he was very involved with planning some large parks in the southern part of brooklyn marine park most notably which got underway under construction but then was halted by the depression basically so I had come across his name and read this book and thought, wow, this is very timely. And I decided that it would not be a bad idea to try to bring it out, revive it and bring it to, you know, a new modern audience.
7: He's enthralled a little bit with the, the hustle and bustle and noise and density and excitement of the streets of Manhattan and of New York. And we're at a point where people are torn in the same way as they were then between should cities be a little bit more bucolic post-pandemic? Do we need more green spaces? Do we need to spread people out a little bit more? Or do we embrace density as a way of making cities efficient? Is that one of the things that caught your imagination?
6: Yeah, at the time that Lay writes this book, there was a, a movement toward building garden cities and basically creating new cities out in the countryside. There was a a move against very large cities, and there was a lot of fear that cities uh, left to their own devices, like New York, would grow to unmanageable proportions, right? And so there was this movement led by people like Lewis Mumford and Clarence Stein, Henry Wright, to create these new towns, these garden cities outside, like satellite cities of a sort. And um, that's largely... What Lay is writing this book against? Right, he's saying we shouldn't be afraid of density and largeness and urbanism. These are things to celebrate. This is the very marrow of city life: is density and crowds, and and we shouldn't be running from it. And this is also a time when you have the just the beginnings of the first waves of people leaving the city. For the suburbs, this is really the first generation of what we would later in the post-World War II era refer to as white flight and suburban sprawl. The automobile is just making its presence felt and a highway and parkway infrastructure is being put in place at this time, too. We're talking about 1926. So
7: many people, again, now post-pandemic, celebrate the move to the countryside the rural way of life as somehow of a, a higher order, but he's quite spiky on this. I, I found him very entertaining. He's very rude about some of the people you find in the countryside. I think he describes them as half-wits and morons.
6: No, I know he—he's uh, some of the language in the book is rather colourful and politically incorrect these days. But remember what he's up against and what partly what he's writing. In opposition to is this very long and kind of hallowed tradition in the United States of a kind of worshipful stance toward the countryside, not wild nature, not wilderness per se, but the settled landscape, the pastoral landscape, the landscape made fertile by agriculture and so forth. So there's this rural urban dialectic tension that goes all the way back to the founding of the country. I mean, you know, you have people like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams writing about how the rural countryside is really the cradle of this democratic republic, and cities are morally corrupt and corrupting and hazardous to your health and moral welfare and so forth and so on. So there's that long anti-urbanist tradition and, but he's also conflicted on this because, as you know, you know, he loved the city. I mean, he was born in the Hudson Valley and spent a lot of time in rural places and then kind of discovers New York City, like so many people that come from elsewhere and come to Manhattan or New York and fall in love with it. But he, throughout his life, maintained a home in the country and loved going on weekends and summers to this very old family homestead in rural Connecticut. So, you know, he had both. So in a way, you could argue like, well, it's convenient to be arguing for the delights of congestion when you're out of there on the weekends.
7: We argue a lot about the need for greater density in our cities and high rises and compact apartments and micro apartments and goodness knows what. But what was Manhattan or what was the core of New York like in his time? Because it sounds like there were incredibly dense neighborhoods, maybe not so high rise, but people living in tenements and often living in in poorer conditions. But density was certainly there at that time.
6: Oh, God, yeah. There was plenty of density, arguably more than currently. I mean, the building stock, you know, in these super dense neighborhoods like the Lower East Side, it's the same building stock by and large. But families were larger the number of people cramped into apartments was enormous i mean part of my family was in circumstances like that back then and you know that was not magically wonderful i mean this is one of the problems with lay's take on this subject that it is very class bound he is writing again from a position of privilege and he's able to go to his beautiful home in Brooklyn Heights, you know, a historic home on a beautiful street. The building is still there. It's on Orange Street in Brooklyn Heights. You know, he was not, you know, subjected to the kinds of harrowing density that immigrant families at the time had to endure in places like Williamsburg or the Lower East Side or, or the Fifth Ward in Brooklyn by the Brooklyn Navy Yard where my family was. So, you know, there's that. That makes things a little bit more complicated. We also didn't have quite the social services, the public health infrastructure that we have today that would have eased the burden of hyperdensity plus poverty.
7: The thing that's so warming across the century is this, just this enthusiasm for the, the machine, the hum of the city. Do you think that we have something to still learn from embracing that now? Because we look at as many of our cities, especially in the US, where downtown cores have been quietened by the shift to working from home, from post-pandemic uh, employment practices. Is there something in this book that you see as a maybe a wistful ode to a time when our cities can be back thrumming?
6: Yeah. One of the reasons I felt it was timely to bring this book back out is the current debates that are going on in our cities. And you're right to point out the conundrum of downtown the Cornell College of Architecture Art and Planning has a teaching facility in lower manhattan which i am at often down at 26 broadway and um i got to see that place before and after the pandemic and it really lower manhattan the financial district has really changed i mean even at rush hour it's remarkable how few people there are relative to before 2020 and so but at the same time you've got other parts of manhattan and new york city and certainly other cities where there's tremendous pressure property values are just off the charts as you well know because you know it's a supply and demand issue a lot of people want to live in park slope or the upper west side and as a result the tiny stock of residences in those places relatively tiny you know has been valued to the moon. And the problem then becomes one of opposition to further densification. There's been a lot of howling over changing zoning so that greater densities can be infilled into some of these neighborhoods. And I get the opposition. I understand it. You don't want to destroy the very values that brought people to a place like Brooklyn Heights or Greenwich Village. But you also need to reconcile that against the enormous disparities in affordability. I mean, Manhattan is rapidly becoming an isle of the super rich. The village is already that. Greenwich Village, is it's extraordinary how much money you need to have to live in Greenwich Village today. It's so expensive. And it's, you know, people that live there are against any kind of further densification of these places. So it's an ongoing debate. And of course, there's been a lot of talk lately about converting the underutilized now office buildings in places like lower Manhattan, uh, the financial district into housing. It's easier said than done. Ironically, the older buildings from the 1920s and 30s are easier to convert to residential than the more modern office buildings uh, because of the floor plate size and configuration and layout.
7: Thomas, before we go, I would just say to listeners, you know, that it is definitely worth getting this book. You know. At times he's part kind of amusing shock jock. I think he knows that he's kind of probably raising a smile and a, a shocked look on some people's faces. There's a bit where he describes how people in the city are going to be forced to have more intelligent children, than people in the countryside, because half wits and morons are easily employed, easily hidden, and bring little disgrace in the countryside. But in the city, they and their parents have a hard time. But I think it's the siren call for the city. And why don't we leave the final words to Charles D. Lay. He says, we must be in the city and of the city. It's enthusiastic partisans. Absorption in such an interest would go far toward making the city perfect as an environment for intellectual and spiritual accomplishment.
0: Thomas Campanella there with Andrew Tuck. And The Freedom of the City, with an introduction and essay from Thomas, is out now via Island Press. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to ensure you don't miss out on any new episodes. The Urbanist is produced by myself, Carlotta Rubello, and by David Stevens. And David also edits the show. To play you out this week, here's Radiohead with packed like sardines in a crushed tin box. Thank you for listening, city lovers.